wouldn't it be awesome is the moment you get saved, the minute you become a born-again Christian, that you never have another problem as long as you live. It'd be nice. And I guess if we if it was that way, boy, we could go out there and really evangelize. Oh, we could just say, hey, look, become a Christian, and you'll never have another problem. But the fact is, it doesn't work that way. Turn me up just a little, I'm sorry. <laughs> it does not make us immune to the trials of life. Why would God? Honestly, I mean, and I think about this, especially when you're in those issues, why would God, who is a loving God, who is a kind and gracious and merciful Father, why would He allow sickness or persecution? I mean, you're serving Him, and then you have to be persecuted, some cases to the death. Why does God allow financial hardships? Why does He allow fear to come into our lives? I mean, think about it. Money that we could have used for other things, good things. Um, time that we could have put into serving the Lord. Uh, uh, beautiful relationships taken from us. You just hard to kind of grip, get to your mind around something like that and come to grips with that. No matter how old we are as believers, I think we all at times wonder what's up with this. A couple of months ago, I was doing my devotional reading and came across a passage in Psalm 11 where God said, the Lord trieth the righteous. I did a double take, even though I'd read that scripture many times. The Lord tries the righteous. The Lord does that. He does that. He does it for a purpose. Now, as I've journeyed through life more than many of you, less than some, and I've gone through many scriptures, or gone through the scriptures many a time, read every word in scripture uh, dozens and dozens, perhaps hundreds of times. After 40 years of ministry, I think if I could put into one capsule all the reasons why God does things. And so I kind of thought through them, prayed through them, and uh, I feel like that at least uh, for the most part, a good 90 plus percent of the things that we go through would fall into at least seven purposes. And so um, I wanted to give them all on one Sunday, but I realized it might be a little too much. So we divided it into three Sundays. Kind of reminds me of the story that I read. There was a terrible blizzard. It was snowing, snowing in the eastern part of our country. Sunday morning came and the pastor saw the snow had reached his window. He didn't think anybody would come into church that morning, but he felt obliged to better be there. He fought his way through the icy snow, got there, waited at the sanctuary about 10 minutes, just about ready to go when the door opened and one man staggered through. Well, hello, the pastor said. Look, brother, church is going to have to be canceled today. You're the only one that's come. The man said, Reverend, let me ask you something. If you had a big old herd of sheep and only one home came that night, would you still feed him? The pastor was amazed. 
started crying. Well, of course I would. He was so filled with excitement then. He got up full of the Holy Spirit, began to preach the best sermon he'd ever preached. He talked about all of life's trials and joys, referred to passages all the way from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Excitement, conviction. This went on for minute after minute. Pretty soon, several hours had gone by. Finally, the minister came to a conclusion, went down and talked to that one man who had come to church. He said, sir, did that satisfy you? The man asked and replied, well, reverend, if you had a herd of sheep and only one came home that night to feed, would you make him eat the whole bale of hay? <laughs> well, I didn't want to give you the whole bale on one day, so uh, we've divided it up into three Sundays. And so today we're going to finish, the Lord willing, the final three of the seven purposes. Uh, maybe a better term would be the seven benefits as God said, to life's trials. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. Thank you, God, for giving us the whole bale, for sure. And I pray that now, God, today, you would just meet with us. Holy Spirit, meet with us. We have invited you in. We have praised you. We have uh, had a wonderful time since early this morning, many people. Now, God, would you just uh, be with us as we finish off strong. Amen. All right, no sleeping, okay? Those of you that had pancakes and uh, keep Brother Pre awake back there, okay? All right, uh, let's reflect for a moment. Now, here's what I would do. If I, uh, now, how many of you had, were at least stressed? We'll just use that term. How many of you were at least, and that's probably a good term for a trial, how many of you had some form of stress this past week. Would you be honest and raise your hand? Okay, so 99.9% .9 of you. And the one-tenth of a percent, uh, I know you're lying, so. Uh, so everybody's had a trial this week. Okay, so when a trial comes, here's what I would do. And I do actually do this, uh, maybe not as uh, distinctly as this, but at least now that you have all set of, seven of these, you can do a little checklist. All right, so why is this? And that's the good question. Why is this here? No trial is arbitrary, as we'll talk about in a few moments. The first thing we talked about was that trials come to reveal areas of weakness. Everybody has them. Everybody has areas of weakness, whether it be with our relationships, our ability to communicate. We have, we have uh, areas of weakness, and we have spiritual weakness. How many would agree with that? Amen. We have spiritual weakness. So we need to do inventory. And maybe sometimes it's not as much a weakness as it is a deficiency. We go to the cupboard and there's not enough peanut butter there. What do we do? Run to the store. and do with anything, uh, out, a lot of things, but not peanut butter. You've got to have natural peanut butter in the cupboard or else life's, you just, you'll die. And you just got to have it. So if we don't have enough... Uh, um, just strength of God in our inventory, we're going to come across a situation. We're not going to have the needed inventory to meet that need. Sometimes it's a weak link, and uh, nothing uh, is any stronger than the weakest member of the link. And so we might have a, you know, a $50,000 sound system, but if you have a $1 fitting and it makes every, it could just keeps everything bad. So uh, when we have a trial in our life, God's just saying, hey, I want to show you something. You have a weakness over here. Second of all, 
trials come to repress attitudes of pride. Paul said it very clearly and boldly, have no confidence in the flesh. And yet, we all pretty much jump off into our day thinking we're going to conquer the day in our own power. Folks, that is berserk. It's ludicrous. And God is going to stop us in our tracks and make us say, man, why didn't I pray? And so God wants us to remember it's Him. He gives us enough blessings to keep us happy, but enough burdens to keep us humble. Number three, it, trials come to remove dependency on this world. And that is for all of us, especially first world Americans, it is our greatest challenge. And that is taking our eyes off of the world and putting them squarely where they're supposed to be back on God. Disappointments that we meet with, meet with in our life help us to find our satisfaction not in the creation, but in the Creator. And that's what this world is all about. This whole world is all worried about trees and global warming. I am much more concerned about God than I am that. Because God, the Creator, is the one who we ought to be caring about. Not that we shouldn't care about the creation. It's just that we shouldn't make sure we put Him first. And that really leads us to number four, and that is trials come to relay whom we really love. Trials are an important test in whom we love, because it's so easy to lose our first love as we go through this world. And so trials help kind of separate us and help us focus on what we really love, that we love God, we love His Word, we love church, we love the things of God. That's what trials come to do. All right. So let's go to number five. But before we do this, let me just clarify something. And that is that um, I think we need to acknowledge that some trials, maybe I should say many trials, (laughs) maybe I should even say most trials, frankly, are not especially a trial sent from God, but they are a result of sowing and reaping. I mean, you cannot violate a scripture without suffering a reproof. Many people think they can because they say, you know, I don't, I don't obey this scripture and I don't see anything wrong with my life. <laughs> my life. Well, um, that's, uh, you know, we all have blind spots, but I will tell you, I mean, it is impossible to step off the edge of this platform and not violate the law or not have to deal with the law of gravity. We can violate God's laws, but what we can't choose are the repercussions for that. And so you may think that, you know, I can violate Scripture and it's all cool. I promise you it's not. And say, well, I, you know, I just don't believe that. But it really doesn't make any difference what we believe. You know, it's just, it is exactly the primary interpretation of Scripture. That's what it comes down to. If we violate it, we certainly uh, reap from that. And then sometimes it's not just a sowing and natural sowing and reaping as much as it really is a divine discipline. A loving father has to chastise his children. Every good father, every good mother does. And uh, about 99% of these protesters never were disciplined as children. If they were, if they had been, they would have uh, been more respectful and understood how things work. And so um, we come, we realize that if we violate um, God's law, or if we sin, then we suffer the consequences. And so, 
you know, sometimes we wonder, why is this happening to me? Well, you know, it's sometimes just, frankly, it's just sin. And so it's not a result of a trial as much as it is sin. So we clarify. So as I said, what do I do? I'm, I'm stressed. I'm having an issue. I need to really sit down and say, okay, am I violating Scripture? And if I am, then until I get that thing taken care of, frankly, anything I do is, you know, I can sing about peace. I can, you know, talk about how wonderful it is. But uh, no, I need to take care of that. Once I take responsibility for that sin and get, make uh, restitution or whatever needs to take, then we can kind of begin to get back on the positive way and start making our way towards our goal. Now, so, but I'm, as far as I know, there's nothing in my life, as far as I know, I'm, you know, I mean, we're not perfect, but God knows my heart. I'm loving Him. I'm trying to serve Him. So if a trial comes into my life, I think it's one of these seven things. Let's go to number five here. Number five, trials come to reposition us to receive the blessings of God. God's trying to get us to a place where He can bless us. If I'm out on a lake and I'm just sitting there and I'm in a sailboat and I am not going anywhere. I need to get to the port. I need to get over there to the shore. I need to get to my destination. I need to reposition that boat so that it can catch the wind. And God repositions our boat somehow. He gets us uh, to a point and where we can catch the blessings of God. Sometimes God would love to pour out blessings into our lives. He would just love to just open up the winds of heaven and just say, open up your hands here and I'll just pour them out. But you know that God can't put blessings into hands that are closed. He can't put blessings into hands that have all kinds of stuff in them. Where do I put them? William Cooper was a friend of John Newton. John Newton, of course, wrote the wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. William Cooper was a poet, uh, a brilliant poet, but he um, spent time in mental institution before he got saved. After he got saved, he had an unbelievable transformation in his life. And he wrote these words. One by one, he took them from me. All the things I valued most. Until I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. Then I walked earth's highway, grieving in my rags and poverty, till I heard his voice inviting, lift up your empty hands to me. So I held my hands towards heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches, till they could contain no more. Then at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour out his riches into hands already full. We want the unexplainable, don't we? We want the miraculous. And yet we never put on ourselves in a place to allow God to make the unexplainable happen. We often settle for mediocrity instead of saying, God, okay, I know you're trying to take these out of my hand so you can give me something so much better. As long as God's chosen people were in Egypt, they had a, at least a reasonable lifestyle. They had their leeks, they had their garlics, part of their diet, which they just really loved. They had an average existence, but God wanted to open up heaven. He wanted to pour His blessings on His people, and so He had to upset the apple cart. He said, Moses, let you tell Pharaoh to let my people go. 
And so they did. God explained why he did all that. In, in, excuse me, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 16, here's what God said. He said, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna? A reasonable diet, but not like the wonderful, great uh, tasting leeks and garlics. You know, it kept us alive. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not. Why? That he might humble thee. Why? That he might put you through a trial, prove thee. Why? So he could pour out blessings, so he could reposition. He could do thee good at thy latter end, good old King James wording. God wanted to bless at the latter end. God reserved his best for last. The Bible records over and over again, no matter how seemingly hard he was on Israel, he always did them good at their latter end. He was always working them over so he could bless them. In Job chapter 42, God said a similar thing, verse 12. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. God blessed the latter end of Job more than the beginning. I mean, Job was a blessed man, and then he went through all these trials. God allowed Satan, but restrained him. He allowed Satan, but put some boundaries on Satan. And God went after Job. And then God said that was enough. And then just as much effort as Satan put into it, he couldn't stop the blessings of God. And God commanded a blessing on Job. His latter end was blessed more than his beginning. And that's what the prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 29, verse 11, when he proclaimed, God is thinking about his people. You'd say, oh boy, that's a trouble. (laughs) God's mind is on me. Yep, God's mind is always on you and I. He never stops thinking about us. He'd say, oh my, he's about ready to fry me. He's about ready to put the hammer down on me. No, God says, my thoughts are good and not evil. Isn't that a good thing? Sometimes people will say to me, I thought you were mad at me. I say, I'm not mad at you. I may have not talked to you for a few weeks, but you know, there's a lot of people or whatever, you know. I say, I'm not mad at you. Oh, I just thought you were mad at me. Why didn't you talk to you? Well, I know, but I just thought that. And, uh, and I'd say, no, I'm not mad at you. I promise you, if I'm mad at you, I'll tell you. I'll come to you, or I'll text you, or email you, or we'll somehow sit down. But uh, no. And sometimes I think we think that about God. You know, God doesn't like me. He's mad at me. Not at all. God said his thoughts towards me are good. God's good thoughts towards me. So he looks at me, and he said, you know, I'm going to let this happen because... Uh, you need this. I'm protecting you from a bigger problem you don't see coming. He lets things come into our lives so that he might prevent us from a bigger problem, a problem that if we don't get taken care of, is going to be a train wreck. I read recently, I think, a story that emphasizes what I'm talking about. In Pennsylvania, there was a broken end of a high-voltage wire lying on the ground, big construction site. An engineer part of the construction team was walking by, unaware of that wire, live, hot, high-voltage wire laying on the ground, unaware that he was about ready to become a piece of fried chicken. A worker who was up on the building saw the wire, saw the engineer walking towards the wire, yelled to warn him, but his voice was drowned out by all the equipment. And so the only thing he knew to do was pick up something. He got a big old bolt, a big old hard thing in his hand, picked it up, and he threw it as hard he could, hit the engineer in the chest. 
The engineer, angry, just ticked off, looked up at that guy, wondered what in the world is he was doing. Just as he did that, he saw the wire. And he looked up tearfully, and that worker said, <laughs> and that guy, he realized that guy just saved his life. Threw a bolt at him, threw a rock at him, and saved his life. Did you know that the Lord does the same thing? The Lord picks up a rock, and we're not listening. We're not hearing him. The dull and the din of the world just keeps us, our minds and everything else. And so God picks up some rocks, and he's just chucking them at us. Boom! Why are you doing that to me, God? God said, I'm trying to get your attention, that's all. I'm trying to save you from something that's about ready to kill you. In Psalm 121 and verse 5, God said, The Lord is thy keeper. He is the shade on thy right hand. Oh man, that sun can be brutal, I'll tell you. About 10 minutes in the sun without a hat for me and I'm fried. And so God says, I'll be your umbrella, but you got to stay close to me. Have you ever felt you're on God's short leash? Have you ever felt like God doesn't let you get away with anything? You're on the short leash. Have you ever felt like that? Boy, I do. It's like, man, other people can do this. I can't even do this. I mean, he just catches me like that. Just slaps me upside the head. Thank God that's because you're under his umbrella. You're close enough to be under the umbrella of God. Shade of sun by day and the frost by night. He doesn't let you wander too far. Trials position us for a greater reward in heaven. That's what Paul said. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, our light affliction. Really light affliction? <laughs> well, it is really. It's but for a moment. It really is only temporary. Worketh for us a far more exceeding weight. Excuse me. Exceeding an eternal weight of glory. God said that the crown, the glory that we're going to receive ought to be a special comfort if we can at least realize that God is doing it so that He can give us glory. He said, I'm doing this so that you can get rewards in heaven. You're going to get rewards as a result of these trials. I'm positioning you for a blessing. In Mark chapter 10, verse 28 and through 30, Peter said to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. He was serious as a heartbeat. This guy was a great guy. Jesus said, really, you've left everything? He said, I promise you. No man who's ever left a home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or your fields for me, for the gospel, but that you will receive a hundred times, a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. He said, a trial only positions you for a blessing a hundred times more than you ever imagined. Empty hands receive greater blessings. God doesn't give us things so that we could pile up. He gives us things so that we can pass them on. Oftentimes we, oh God, why haven't you answered our prayers? Why aren't you willing to just pour out blessings on me? God says, I'm totally willing, but I don't know where to put them because your hands are so full of the world. Your hands are full, full of stuff. Your so, hands are so full, I can't even give you a blessing. Empty hands receive the blessings of God. There was a story told of a 10-year-old boy who wanted to study judo. He had lost his left arm as a younger child in a tragic auto accident. But he'd gone on with life, made the best he could. 
The coach was kind of wary, but he agreed to let this little 10-year-old boy who had lost his left arm to study judo. After about three months, the boy couldn't understand, however, how the coach had only taught him one move. He said to the coach, shouldn't I be learning more moves? The coach said, this is the only move you'll ever need. He really didn't understand, but realized the coach knew more than he did, so he kept training. Several months went by, still kind of frustrated, only learned one move. Went to his first tournament, unbelievably won his first two matches. The final match, which was to determine the tournament champion, was the strongest, biggest guy he'd ever seen in his life. He was going after that guy. That guy was going after him. Finally, the other opponent became impatient, charged this young man with just one arm, and he did his one move. He did his only move. Won the tournament. On the way home, got up enough courage to ask the coach, how in the world did I win a tournament with just one move? The coach said, well, there's two reasons. First of all, it may have been the only move you knew, but it is the most intricate and difficult and powerful moves in judo. It may have been only one move, but you learned it well. And number two, the interesting thing is that the only known defense for that move is to grab the opponent by the left arm. <laughs> you don't have a left arm. You're going to win every match. God's just positioning us for a blessing. That's all. That's what he's doing. All right, number six. God is not only trying to position us to receive a blessing, but to refine our testimony. Tests are opportunity for testimonies. Tests are just opportunities to give a testimony. It gives God so much glory when we're obedient. It gives God so much glory when we're obedient and trusting. David discovered the importance of testifying during a test. Psalm 71, my mouth shall show forth thy righteousness. If you read the first part of Psalm 71, you'll know David was complaining about all the trials, all the issues. Then he finally realized, hey, this is an opportunity to testify for God. And all the day, for I know not the numbers thereof, verse 16, I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness. I will make mention. The lessons we receive, the grace we get, are just ways for us to testify about God. There's a well-known Christian um, woman, mother, uh, amazing Christian lady named Johnny, Johnny Erickson uh, Tata. <laughs> anyway, Johnny. She is a quadriplegic, and um, she is in a wheelchair, and she goes all over the country sharing about God. It's the test that gave her a testimony, and God is using the test, and it is amazing what giving God glory. I'm going to ask uh, Nancy and Felix, would you come up here for a minute and help me? Um, there's a chorus that um, we learned many years ago. It's an old chorus, but it has a, a melody that you'll recognize, and it's a, 
it's a melody that it has, it's kind of an earworm. It's amazing what praising will do. Do we have the words there? You can put those up there. All right. This little chorus says, if you'll start praising, you'll just be amazed at what'll happen. How many remember this old chorus? Remember it? Okay. Let's sing it out if we can. All right. Ready? It's amazing what praising can do. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It's amazing what praising can do. got that? All right, let's sing it out, okay? You're doing good. Isn't it good to have Brother Felix back here? <laughs> we used to go all over Stockton and Lodi witnessing. He always bring his guitar. We went up to one person's house and they said, this is a mean looking guy. He said, ah, you know, I don't want to talk to you. And he saw Felix with his guitar. And I said, Felix, he, he, he plays the guitar. And he said, really? We got in the house. We started singing there. wasn't too long until that guy was just weeping. We led him to Jesus. He wouldn't talk to me, but he liked Felix with his guitar. So uh, <laughs> everybody loves Felix. But uh, all right, let's sing it out. Here we go. Ready? It's amazing what praising can do. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's amazing what praising I would let you do more, but uh, we got a few minutes to finish here. But that's amazing. It truly is just that. Amazing when you start praising. Folks, so you're all stressed out. <laughs> I was frustrated this week, and when I get frustrated, I do Baptist cussing. And... It, that's about what I was doing. I was going, the guy looked at me and said, is that Latin? <laughs> but uh, but I'll tell you what, if you break out into that little song, it's amazing what praising can do. Hallelujah, hallelujah. People are going to look at you going, what is wrong with that person? It's amazing <laughs> what praising and that's what God is trying to say. He said, I'm, it is amazing what will happen if you use your test to praise God. That's what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation, 
that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. The favor that God bestows on us is not intended to make us merely blissful, but useful. And that's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens so you fulfill the law of Christ. Suffering sometimes comes for no other person, for another reason that God just wants us to testify. He wants us to testify to believers that God is good. He wants us to give the gospel to somebody. And so if I'm in the middle of a test, I need to ask myself the question, is God wanting me to speak to somebody? If you get sick, you may have a five or six people you have to talk to from the person that takes your blood all the way to the doctor, whoever, you know. Each one of those persons is someone I'm supposed to say, it's amazing what praising can do. How are you doing today? Blessed. I'm blessed. It's amazing. What is going on in your life? Oh, man, I feel terrible, but I tell you one thing. I'm so, I, God's been so good to me. God is giving you an amazing opportunity to give God the glory. God has somebody to give the gospel. He may put you in a wreck so that you can give the gospel to the person. He may have a policeman stop you so that he can, well, I don't know about that. And uh, that uh, going over the speed, oh, anyway. Um, uh, but God does do things. It's amazing what God does. Success is in the struggle. We had a guest last summer in our Pray to Miracles who challenged us that really one of the best ways to witness is just ask the person, what can I pray for? What can I just pray for? It's amazing what that thing will, door that will open for us. Success is in the struggle. It is the test that makes the testimony. There was a famous study done by Victor and Mildred Gertzel of the home backgrounds of the 300 of the most highly successful people. All 300 of these people came from the highest and most respected of their fields. Names like Franklin Roosevelt, Albert Schweitzer, Clara Barton, Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud, Gandhi. Listen to this. Three-fourths of them had a troubled poverty, childhood. Poverty, broken homes, rejection. 74 of the 85 writers of fiction or drama. 16 of the 20 poets. All came from homes where, as a child... They saw or experienced physical, emotional, or spiritual abuse. More than 75 of them were victims of physical handicaps, such as sight or hearing impaired. It's the struggle that makes the strength. In, Psalm, in Luke 22, and verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, <laughs> he's calling me by my first name. Lord, behold, Satan has desired to have you. They may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. What's the purpose, Lord? Then when you're converted, you will strengthen the brethren. There you go. You'll strengthen the brethren. In Hebrews chapter 2 and, verse, and also in Hebrews chapter 4, the Bible says we have a high priest who became a faithful and merciful high priest by going through everything that we've gone through. And as such, he is there to strengthen us and that's really one of the greatest questions we need to ask ourselves. Lord, what am I here for? Remember, people over projects. Now, if there's a fire in the house, I, we can do the project before the people. But if this is not a fire and someone interrupts my project, it's people before projects. 
If a child comes in, a grandchild comes in, if someone walks in on me, don't get mad at them. God may want you to witness to them. People over projects. Unless it's a fire, it's people over projects. And so that's what God's wanting me to do. God's wanting me to witness. God's wanting me to talk to somebody. I remember reading a story about Ronald Reagan. He was late for an appointment, and his aides were just absolutely just mortified and so upset. He was keeping some head of state just waiting. He was so, they were just like, how in the world could you do this? They found out that Ronald Reagan had led to the Lord one of the workers there in the White House. He had taken time to lead the man to the Lord. You can find the story online yourself. You know, it's people over projects. God may just want me to talk to somebody. And finally, number seven, trials come to remind us who is in charge. There may be no other reason, just that God is just saying, I'm in charge. You know, I wear t-shirts, but I also, full v-neck t-shirts. I'm sorry to explain the kind of clothing I wear. Uh, but uh, I wear uh, uh, T-shirts, but uh, sometimes I wear uh, those old-fashioned T-shirts. You know those wife beaters, they call them, right? And you're, you know what those are, right? They kind of, and for some reason, they look like muscle shirts, don't they? So every time I put it on, I just kind of walk around like this. <laughs> and especially if Pauline comes by, just like, like that. Like that, and she just kind of smiles and says, Woo woo. Did you know that sometimes God's just going like this? I'm in charge. What's in the world? God just saying, You know, if it doesn't make sense to you, good. I happen to be an infinite God. And if it doesn't make sense to you, maybe that's because I'm God. And you are just a human. <laughs> We'd put our, I, I would, I'd put our kids on the kitchen counter. Every one of them did this, Luke, Anna, all the way down to Abby. Put them up on the kitchen counter, stand them up there, and I'd say, all right, jump. And they'd look at me like, what kind of a cruel, unmerciful, adult-like person? What kind of a father are you? I'd say, jump. They'd look at me, you know, because I wanted to build the build. Trust in their father. I'm sure Lynette thought it was just because I like to torture children, but uh, probably both, a little of both. But um, <laughs> we'll take the high road, right? Try to build trust in their father. So they would, you know, they'd reach out and get their edge there, you know, and they'd like that, you know. And I'd step back a little bit. Well, we'd get them to the point where they'd... Pretty soon, you know, they'd just take a run and leap, you know. Wow! <laughs> and uh, there they would. They would come flying at me, you know, and I'd catch them. And we kept, I, and you know what I kept doing? I kept stepping back. Stepping back. God steps back. He steps back. Where's God? He's stepping back. Jump further. Why? Just want to show you I'm a big God. I want to show that I'm ready for you. I'm in control. Paul said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution or famine or naked or parrot or sore? No. <laughs> God's just saying, I'm just wanting you all along to know I love you. I love you. 
Just trust me. I'm a big God. God always has an overarching purpose. Charles Goodyear went to jail for the contempt of court. While he was in prison, went to work in the prison kitchen and worked on an idea for which he developed a method for vulcanizing rubber, which at the time was revolutionized car tires. Martin Luther was forced to stay in the Wartburg Castle and as a result translated the Bible into the German language. God's just doing something. Some wonderful Christian author said, trials are simply the disguise of randomness. I love that statement. The disguise of randomness. But it never is random, is it? First Peter 1 6, wherefore, wherein we greatly rejoice. Really? Yep. I'm happy about this trial. Though now for a season, just a season, it's a season, if need be, excuse me, if need be, if need be, do you know what that translation is? It means it may become necessary for you to be trialed, to be in a trial. God very rarely discloses to us the purpose of trials at the beginning. We usually gain perspective as months and maybe even years go by. But if we find uh, that it's not a random moment, but in fact, I need this. There's a reason behind this. I think often Christians fail to persevere because they just don't think that there's a purpose but there is nothing random for the life of a believer. God has a purpose in this situation. You'd say, well, what possible purpose? I'm hurting. I'm losing money. It's a difficult look. God has a purpose. He may have you to witness. He may have you to sing that song. I don't know, but God's got a purpose. If you've ever gone to a hospital and listened to conversations taking place between people, They'll say things like, you know, honey, it's all going to work out and everything's going to be okay. And, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. And these people mean well. And I know they're trying to give hope to somebody else. But unfortunately, without, a, without Christ in their life, they really can't say that it's all going to be okay. Because hope comes through knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we realize that as a Christian, nothing is random. It may be disguised as random, but it's not. It is absolutely, undeniably on point. In the midst of the trial, we obey. And when we obey, we're blessed. And in all of that, we show that we trust that God is in charge. God, I can't figure out if this is one, two, three, four, five, or six, but if it's nothing else, I know one thing it is, and that is you're just flexing your muscle. You're God, you're divine, you're superior. All I can do is obey you. I'll just keep doing what's right. You can figure it all out. Sometimes, maybe that's why the book of James said, endure, just endure. The family sat down at the dinner table. Dad asked his young son to say grace. It's meal time. You need to say grace over the meal. While the family was waiting, the little boy quickly eyed every dish which his mother had so faithfully prepared. And then he bowed his head and he prayed, Lord, 
I don't like the look of any of it. But I thank you, and I'll eat it anyway. And sometimes we look at our lives and we look at what God has prepared and we say, God, I don't like the look of any of it. It doesn't look very good. It just, it looks like something I don't want. But God, you're in charge. You made it and I'll obey. I'll do it anyway. And I thank you and love you. Whatever you want, Lord. Life's not easy. It's so challenging at times. But there's at least seven purposes that God is trying to bless. He's trying to teach us things. He's trying to get us to testify. God's a good God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed this morning.